Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to Read Aloud. Thanks for coming inside on a beautiful day to be with us. Um, and please join me in welcoming um, Georgina Dodge and Judy Wu, who are going to read from the Joy Luck Club for us. You're invited to move up. There's plenty of seats up front. Are you in the center? Okay. Can you hear us? Is it too soft? You can hear us? Okay. You may or may not know this, but this is my mom. <laughs> At least for this afternoon. Um, for those who are not familiar with the Joy Luck Club, it's, um, I guess, centered about a mahjong party or a group of people who play mahjong. And mahjong is a Chinese game that involves four people. Um, and so there's four sets of mothers and four sets of daughters, and the, the book talks about the relationships between the mothers and daughters. So we're going to be sharing with you two sets of mother-daughter relationships. I'm the daughter, <laughs> or one of the daughters. This is Waverly Zhang, Rules of the Game. I was six when my mother taught me the art of invisible strength. It was a strategy for winning arguments, respect from others, and eventually, though neither one of us knew it at the time, chess games. Bite back your tongue, scolded my mother when I cried loudly, yanking her hand toward a store that sold bags of salted plums. At home, she said, wise guy, he not go against the wind. In Chinese, we say, come from the south, blow with the wind. Boom. North will follow. Strongest wind cannot be seen. The next week, I bit back my tongue as we entered the store with the forbidden candies. When my mother finished her shopping, she quietly plucked a small bag of plums from the rack and put it on the counter with the rest of the items. My mother imparted her daily truths so she could help my brothers, older brothers and me rise above our circumstances. We lived in San Francisco's Chinatown. Like most of the other Chinese children who played in the back alleys of restaurants and curio shops, I didn't think we were poor. My bowl was always full, three five-course meals every day, beginning with a soup full of mysterious things I didn't want to know the names of. We lived on Waverly Place in a warm, clean, two-bedroom flat that sat above a small Chinese bakery specializing in steamed pastries and dim sum. In the early morning, when the alley was still quiet, I could smell fragrant red beans as they were cooked down to a pasty sweetness. By daybreak, our flat was heavy with the odor of fried sesame balls and sweet curry chicken crescents. From my bed, I would listen as my father got ready for work, then lock the door behind him. One, two, three clicks. At the end of our two-block alley was a small sandlot playground with swings and slides, well shined down the middle with use. The play area was bordered by wood slap benches where old people sat cracking roasted watermelon seeds with their golden teeth and scattering the husks to an impatient gathering of gurgling pigeons. The best playground, however, was the dark alley itself. It was crammed with daily mysteries and adventures. My brother and I would peer into the medicinal herb shop, watching old Lee dole out a stiff sheet of white paper the right amount of insect shells, saffron-colored seeds, and pungent leaves for his ailing customers. It was said that he once cured a woman dying of an ancestral curse that eluded the best of American doctors. Next to the pharmacy was a printer who specialized in gold embossed wedding invitations and festive red banners. Farther down the street was Ping Yuan Fish Market, 
the front window displayed a tank crowded with doomed fish and turtles, struggling to gain footing on the slimy green pine A handwritten sign informed tourists, within this door is all for food, not for pet. Inside, the butchers with their blood-stained white smocks deftly gutted the fish while customers cried out their orders and shouted, give me your freshest, to which the butchers always protested, all our freshest. On less crowded market days, we would inspect the crates of live frogs and crabs which we were warned not to poke, boxes of dried cuttlefish, and row upon row of ice prawns, squid, and slippery fish. The sand dads made me shiver every time. Their eyes lie on one flattened side and reminded me of my mother's story of a careless girl who ran into a crowded street and was crushed by a cab. Was smashed flat, reported my mother. At the corner of the alley was Hong Sing's, a four-table cafe with a recessed stairwell in front that led to a door marked Tradesman. My brother and I believe the bad people emerged from this door at night. Tourists never went to Hong Sing's since the menu was printed only in Chinese. A Caucasian man with a big camera once posed me and my playmates in front of the restaurant. He had us moved to the side of the picture window so the photo would capture the roasted duck with its head dangling from a juice-covered rope. After he took the picture, I told him, he'd go to Hong Sing's and eat dinner. When he smiled and asked me what they served, I shouted, guts and duck's feet and octopus gizzards. Then I ran off with my friends, shrieking with laughter as we scampered across the alley and hid in the entry grotto of the China Gem Company, my heart pounding with hope that he would chase us. My mother named me after the street we lived on, Waverly Place Zhang, my official name for important American documents. But my family called me Mei Mei, little sister. I was the youngest, the only daughter. Each morning after school or before school, my mother would twist and yank on my thick black hair until she had formed two tightly wound pigtails. One day, as she struggled to weave a hard tooth comb through my disobedient hair, I had a sly thought. I asked her, Ma, what is Chinese torture? My mother shook her head. A bobby pin was wedged between her lips. She wetted her palm and smoothed the hair above my ear, then pushed the pin in so that it mixed sharply against my scalp. Who say this word, she asked without a trace of knowing how wicked I was being. I shrugged my shoulders and said, some boy in my class said Chinese people do Chinese torture. Chinese people do many things, she said simply. Chinese people do business, do medicine, do painting, not lazy like American people. We do torture, best torture. Okay, the first thing I'm going to do is ask our AV guy to stop this conversation back there. Hello? Hello? You guys are annoyingly loud to us sitting here. Thank you. <laughs> it's okay. I'm used to this. <laughs> I teach. <laughs> okay, I'm going to read a little section from Lindo Jong, and this is Waverly's mother, so we're doing a mother-daughter conversation here. I once sacrificed my life to keep my parents' promise. This means nothing to you, because to you, promises mean nothing. A daughter can promise to come to dinner, but if she has a headache, if she has a traffic jam, if she wants to watch a favorite movie on TV, she no longer has a promise. I watched this same movie when you did not come. The American soldier promises to come back and marry the girl. 
She is crying with a genuine feeling, and he says, Promise, promise, honey, sweetheart, my promise is as good as gold. Then he pushes her onto the bed. But he doesn't come back. His gold is like yours. It is only 14 carats. To Chinese people, 14 carats isn't real gold. Feel my bracelets. They must be 24 carats, pure, inside and out. It's too late to change you, but I'm telling you this because I worry about your baby. I worry that someday she will say, thank you, grandmother, for the gold bracelet. I'll never forget you. But later, she will forget her promise. She will forget she had a grandmother. In this same war movie, the American soldier goes home and he falls to his knees asking another girl to marry him. And the girl's eyes run back and forth, so shy, as if she had never considered this before. And suddenly, her eyes look straight down, and she knows now she loves him so much she wants to cry. Yes, she says at last, and they marry forever. This was not my case. Instead, the village matchmaker came to my family when I was just two years old. No, nobody told me this. I remember it all. It was summertime, very hot and dusty outside. And I heard a kid crying in the yard. We were under some trees in our orchid. The servants and my brothers were picking pears high above me. And I was sitting in my mother's hot, sticky arms. I was waving my hand this way and that because in front of me floated a small bird with horns and, pow and colorful paper-thin wings. And then the paper bird flew away, and in front of me were two ladies. I remember them because one lady made watery sure, sure sounds. When I was older, I came to recognize this as a Peking accent, which sounds quite strange to Taiyun people's ears. The two ladies were looking at my face while talking. The lady with the watery voice had a painted face that was melting. The other lady had the dry face of an old tree trunk. She looked first at me, then at the painted lady. Of course, now I know the tree trunk lady was the old village matchmaker, and the other one was Huang Tai Tai, the mother of the boy I would be forced to marry. No, it's not true that some ch what some Chinese say about girl babies being worthless. It depends on what kind of girl baby you are. In my case, people could see my value. I looked and smelled like a precious bun cake, sweet with a good color. The matchmaker bragged about me, an earth horse for an earth sheep. That is the best marriage combination. She patted my arm and I pushed her hand away. Huang Tai Tai whispered in her sure, sure voice, that perhaps I had an unusually bad peachy, a bad temper. But the matchmaker laughed and said, not so, not so, she is a strong horse. She will grow up to be a hard worker who serves you well in your old age. And this is when Huang Tai Tai looked down at me with a cloudy face as though she could penetrate my thoughts and see my future intentions. I will never forget her look. Her eyes opened wide, she searched my face carefully, and then she smiled. I could see a large gold tooth staring at me like the blinding sun, 
and then the rest of her teeth opened wide as if she was going to swallow me down in one piece. That is how I became betrothed to Huang Tai Tai's son, who I later discovered was just a baby, just one year younger than I. His name was Chun Yu, Chun for sky, because he was so important, and Yu meaning leftovers, because when he was born, his father was very sick and his family thought he might die. Chung Yu would be the leftover of his father's spirit. But his father lived, and his grandmother was scared the ghosts would turn their attention to this baby boy and take him instead. So they watched him carefully, made all his decisions, and he became very spoiled. But even if I had known I was getting such a bad husband, I had no choice, now or later. That was how backward families in the country were. We were always the last to give up stupid old-fashioned customs. In other cities already, a man could choose his own wife, with his parents' permission, of course. But we were cut off from this type of new thought. You never heard if ideas were better. In, you never heard if ideas were better in another city, only if they were worse. We were told stories of sons who were so influenced by bad wives that they threw their old crying parents out into the street. So, two Yanis mothers continued to choose their daughters-in-law, ones who would raise proper sons, care for the old people, and faithfully sweep the family burial grounds long after the old ladies had gone to their graves. Because I was promised to the Huang son for marriage, my own family began treating me as if I belonged to somebody else. My mother would say to me when the rice bowl went up to my face too many times, "Look how much Huang Tai Tai's daughter can eat." My mother did not treat me this way because she didn't love me. She would say this, biting back her tongue, so she wouldn't wish for something that was no longer hers. Back to Waverly. I had taken my mother out to lunch at my favorite Chinese restaurant in hopes of putting her in a good mood, but it was a disaster. When we met at the Four Directions restaurant, she eyed me with immediate disapproval. Ah, yeah. What's the matter with your hair? She said in Chinese. What do you mean? What's the matter? I said. I had a cut. Mr. Rory had styled my hair differently this time—an asymmetrical, blunt-lined fringe that was shorter on the left side. It was fashionable, yet not radically so. Looks chopped off, she said. You must ask for your money back. I sighed. Let's just have a nice lunch together, okay? She wore her tight-lipped, pinched-nosed look as she scanned the menu, muttering, "Not too many good things this menu." Then she tapped the waiter's arm, wiped the length of her chopsticks with her finger, and sniffed. "This greasy thing? Do you expect me to eat with it?" She made a show of washing her rice bowl with hot tea, and then warned other restaurant patrons seated near to us to do the same. She told the waiter to take this to make sure the soup, soup was very hot. And of course, it was by her tongue's expert estimate, not even lukewarm. You shouldn't get so upset, I said to my mother after she disputed a charge of two extra dollars because she had specified chrysanthemum tea instead of regular green tea. Besides, unnecessary stress isn't good for your heart. Nothing's wrong with my heart, she huffed as she kept a disparaging eye on the waiter. And she was right. Despite all the tension she places on herself and others. The doctors had proclaimed that my mother, at age 69, had the blood pressure of a 16-year-old and the strength of a horse, and that's what she is—a horse, born in 
destined to be obstinate and frank to the point of tactlessness. She and I make a bad combination, because I'm a rabbit, born in 1951, supposedly sensitive, with tendencies towards thin-skinned and skittery at the first sign of criticism. After our miserable lunch, I gave up the idea that there would ever be a good time to tell her the news, that Rich Shields and I were getting married. Why are you so nervous, my friend Marlene Ferber had asked over the phone the other night. It's not as if Rich is the scum of the earth. He's a tax attorney like you, for Christ's sake. How could she criticize that? You don't know my mother, I said. She never thinks anybody's good enough for anything. So elope with the guy, said Marlene. That's what I did with Marvin. Marvin was my first husband, my high school sweetheart. So there you go, Marlene. So when my mother found out, she threw her shoe at us, I said. And that was just for openers. My mother had never met Rich. In fact, every time I brought up his name, when I said, for instance, that Rich and I had gone to the symphony, that Rich had taken my four-year-old daughter, Shoshana, to the zoo, my mother found a way to change the subject. Did I tell you, I said, as we waited for the lunch bill at Four Directions, what a great time Shoshana had with Rich at the Exploratorium? He, oh, interrupted my mother, I didn't tell you. Your father, doctor, said maybe need exploratory surgery. But no, now they say everything normal, just too much constipated. I gave up, and then we did our usual routine. I paid for the bill with a 10 and three ones. My mother pulled back the dollar bills and counted out exact change, 13 cents, and put that on the tray instead, explaining firmly, no tip. She tossed her head back with a triumphant smile. And while my mother used the restroom, I slipped the waiter a $5 bill. He nodded to me with deep understanding. While she was gone, I devised another plan. Tosula, stinks to death in there, muttered my mother when she returned. She mudged me with a little travel package of Kleenex. She did not trust other people's toilet paper. Do you need to use? I shook my head. But before I drop you off, let's stop at my place real quick. There's something I want to show you. My mother had not been into my apartment in months. When I was first married, she used to drop by unannounced until one day I suggested she should call ahead of time. Ever since then, she has refused to come unless I issue an official invitation. And so I watched her, seeing her reaction to the changes in my apartment, from the pristine habitat I maintained after the divorce, when all of a sudden I had too much time to keep my life in order, to this present chaos, a home full of life and love. The hallway floor was littered with Shoshana's toys, all bright plastic things with scattered parts. There was a set of Rich's barbells in the living room, two dirty snifters on the coffee table, the disemboweled remains of a phone that Shoshana and Rich took apart the other day to see where the voices came from. It's back here, I said. We kept walking, all the way to the back bedroom. The bed was unmade, dresser drawers were hanging out with socks and ties spilling over. My mother stepped over running shoes, more of Shoshana's toys, Rich's black loafers, my scars, a stack of white shirts just back from the cleaners. Her look was one of painful denial, reminding me of a time long ago when she took my mother down to get our polio booster shots. As the needle went into my brother's arm and he screamed, my mother looked at me with agony, written all over her face, and assured me, next one doesn't work. But now, how could my mother not notice that we were living together, that this was serious and would not go away even if she didn't talk about it? 
She had to say something. I went to the closet and then came back with a mink jacket that Rich had given me for Christmas. It was the most extravagant gift I had ever received. I put the jacket on. It's sort of a silly present, I said nervously. It's hardly ever cold in San Francisco to wear mink, but it seems to be a fad when people are buying for their, girl, for their wives and girlfriends these days. My mother was quiet. She was looking toward my open closet, bulging with racks of shoes, ties, my dresses, and Rich's suits. She ran her fingers over the mink. This is not so good, she said at last. It is just leftover strips, and the fur is too short, no long hairs. How can you criticize a gift, I protested. I was deeply wounded. He gave me this from his heart. That is why I worry, she said. And looking at the coat in the mirror, I couldn't fend off the strength of her will anymore. Her ability to make me see black where there was once white. White where there was black, black. The coat looked shabby, an imitation of romance. Aren't you going to say anything else, I asked softly. What should I say? About the apartment, about this, I gestured to all the signs of rich lying about. She looked around the room toward the hall, and finally she said, You have career. You're busy. You want to live like a mess? What can I say? My mother knows how to hit a nerve, and the pain I feel is worse than any other kind of misery, because what she does, not, does always comes back as a shock, exactly like electric jolt, that grounds itself permanently in my memory. I still remember the first time I felt it. Now we're back to the mother, Linda Jong. My daughter wanted to go to China for her second honeymoon, but now she is afraid. What if I blend in so well they'll think I'm one of them, Waverly asked me. What if they don't let me get back to the United States? When you go to China, I told her, you don't even need to open your mouth. They already know you are an outsider. What are you talking about, she asked. My daughter likes to speak back. She likes to question what I say. Ayah, I said, even if you put on, your, put on their clothes, even if you take off your makeup, they know. They know just watching the way you walk, the way you carry your face. They know you do not belong. My daughter did not look pleased when I told her this, that she didn't look Chinese. She had a sour American look on her face. Oh, maybe ten years ago, she would have clapped her hands, hooray, as if this was good news. But now she wants to be Chinese. It is so fashionable. And I know it is too late. All those years, I tried to teach her. She followed my Chinese ways only until she learned to walk out the door by herself and go to school. So now the only Chinese words she can say are xie xie, hu xie, zhi fun, and guan duang shui zhua. How can she talk to people in China with those words? Pee pee, choo choo train, eat, clothes, light, sleep. How can she think she can blend in? Only her skin and her hair are Chinese. Inside, she is all American made. It is my fault she is this way. I wanted my children to have the best combination, American circumstances and Chinese character. How could I know these two things do not mix? I taught her how American circumstances work. If you are born poor here, it's no lasting shame. You are first in line for a scholarship. If the roof crashes on your head, 
No need to cry over this bad luck. You can sue anybody. Make the landlord fix it. You do not have to sit like a Buddha under a tree letting pigeons drop their dirty business on your head. You can buy an umbrella or go inside a Catholic church. In America, nobody says you have to keep the circumstances somebody else gives you. She learned these things, but I couldn't teach her about Chinese character, how to obey parents and listen to your mother's mind, how not to show your own thoughts, to put your feelings behind your face so you can take advantage of hidden opportunities, why easy things are not worth pursuing, how to know your own worth and polish it, never flaunting it around like a cheap ring, why Chinese thinking is best. No, this kind of thinking didn't stick to her. She was too busy chewing gum, blowing bubbles bigger than her cheeks. Only that kind of thinking stuck. Finish your coffee, I told her yesterday. Don't throw your blessings away. Don't be so old-fashioned, Ma, she told me, finishing her coffee down the sink. I'm my own person, and I think. How can she be her own person? When did I give her up? I guess I'm supposed to keep reading. <laughs> My daughter is getting married a second time, so she asked me to go to her beauty parlor, her famous Mr. Rory. I know her meaning. She is ashamed of my looks. What will her husband's parents and his important lawyer friends think of this backward old Chinese woman? Auntie An Mei can cut me, I say. Rory is famous, says my daughter, as if she had no ears. He does fabulous work. So I sit in Mr. Rory's chair. He pumps me up and down until I am the right height. Then my daughter criticizes me as if I were not there. See how it's flat on one side? She accuses my head. She needs a cut and a perm, and this purple tint in her hair. She's been doing it at home. She's never had anything professionally done. She is looking at Mr. Rory in the mirror. He is looking at me in the mirror. I have seen this professional look before. Americans don't really look at one another when talking. They talk to their reflections. They look at others or themselves only when they think nobody is watching. So they never see how they really look. They see themselves smiling without their mouth open, or turn to the side where they cannot see their faults. How does she want it? Asks Mr. Rory. He thinks I do not understand English. He is floating his fingers through my hair. He is showing how his magic will make my hair thicker and longer. Ma, how do you want it? Why does my daughter think she is translating English for me? Before I can even speak, she explains my thoughts. She wants a soft wave. We probably shouldn't cut it too short; otherwise, it'll be too tight for the wedding. She doesn't want to look kinky or weird. And now she says to me in a loud voice, as if I had lost my hearing, "Isn't that right, Ma? Not too tight?" I smile. I use my American face. That's the face Americans think is Chinese, the one they cannot understand. But inside, I am becoming ashamed. I am, I am ashamed. She is ashamed, because she is my daughter, and I am proud of her. And I am her mother, and she is not proud of me. Mr. Rory pats my hair more. He looks at me, 
He looks at my daughter. Then he says something to my daughter that really displeases her. It's uncanny how much you two look alike. I smile, this time with my Chinese face. But my daughter's eyes and her smile become very narrow, the way a cat pulls itself small just before it bites. Now Mr. Rory goes away so we can think about this. I hear him snap his fingers. Wash, Mrs. Zhang is next. So my daughter and I are alone in this crowded beauty parlor. She is frowning at herself in the mirror. She sees me looking at her. The same cheeks, she says. She points to mine and then pokes her cheeks. She sucks them outside in to look like a starved person. She puts her face next to mine, side by side, and we look at each other in the mirror. You can see your character in your face, I say to my daughter without thinking. You can see your future. What do you mean, she says. And now I have to fight back my feelings. These two faces, I think, so much the same. The same happiness, the same sadness, the same good fortune, the same faults. I am seeing myself and my mother back in China when I was a young girl. Yeah, we're going to stick with the daughter and mother role, so as not to confuse you. If we were to change off, it might be confusing. I want to respect my elder. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're going to switch to another um, daughter-mother conversation, um, and I'm going to be Rose Shu Jordan, and the title of this chapter is called Half and Half. As proof of her faith, my mother used to carry a small leatherette Bible when she went to the first Chinese Baptist church every Sunday. But later, after my mother lost her faith in God, that leatherette Bible wound up wedged under a too short table leg, a way for her to correct the imbalances of life. It's been there for over 20 years. My mother pretends that the Bible isn't there. Whenever anyone asks her what it's doing there, she says a little too loudly, oh, this, I forgot. But I know she sees it. My mother is not the best housekeeper in the world. And after all these years, the Bible is still clean white. Tonight, I'm watching my mother sweep under the same kitchen table, something she does every night after dinner. She gently pokes her broom around the table leg propped up by the Bible. I watch her, sweep after sweep, waiting for the right moment to tell her about Ted and me, that we're getting divorced. When I tell her, I know she's going to say, this cannot be. And when I say that it is certainly true, that our marriage is over, I know what else she will say. Then you must save it. And even though I know it's hopeless, there's absolutely nothing left to save. I'm that. She'll still try to persuade me. I think it's ironic that my mother wants me to fight the divorce. Seventeen years ago, she was chagrined when I started dating Ted. My older sisters had dated only Chinese boys from church before getting married. Ted and I met in a politics of ecology class when he leaned over and offered to pay me $2 for last week's notes. I refused the money and accepted a cup of coffee instead. This is during my second semester at UC Berkeley, where I had enrolled as a liberal arts major and later changed to fine arts. Ted was in his third year in pre-med, his choice, he told me, ever since he dissected a fetal pig in sixth grade. I have to admit, what I initially found attractive in Ted were precisely the things that made him different from my brothers and the Chinese boys I had dated. His brashness, the assuredness with which he asked for things and expected to get them, his opinionated manner, his angular face and lanky body, the thickness of his arms, 
the fact that his parents immigrated from Tarrytown, New York, not Tianjin, China. My mother must have noticed these same differences after Ted picked me up one evening at my parents' house. When I returned home, my mother was still up watching television. He is American, warned my mother, as if I had been too blind to notice. A Wigoran. I'm American too, I said. It's not as if I'm going to marry him or something. Mrs. Jordan also said a few words to also had a few words to say. Ted had casually invited me to a family picnic, the annual clan reunion held at the polo fields in Golden Gate Park. Although we had dated only a few times in the last month and certainly had never slept together since both of us lived at home, Ted introduced me to all his relatives as his girlfriend, which until then I didn't know I was. Later, when Ted and his father went off to play volleyball with the others, his mother took my hand and we started walking along the grass away from the crowd. She squeezed my palm warmly, but never seemed to look at me. I'm so glad to meet you finally, Mrs. Jordan said. I wanted to tell her I wasn't really Ted's girlfriend, but she went on. I think it's nice that you and Ted are having such a lot of fun together, so I, I hope you won't misunderstand what I have to say. And then she spoke quietly about Ted's future. His need to concentrate on medical studies, why it would be years before he could ever think about marriage. She assured me she had nothing whatsoever against minorities. She and her husband, who owned a chain of office supply stores, personally knew many fine people who were Oriental, Spanish, and even black. But Ted was going to be one of those professions where he would be judged by a different standard, by patients of other doctors who might not be as understanding as the Jordans were. She said it was so unfortunate the rest of the world was. How unpopular the Vietnam War was, Mrs. Jordan. I'm not Vietnamese. I said softly, even though I was on the verge of shouting, and I have no intention of marrying your son. When Ted drove me home that day, I told him I couldn't see him anymore. When he asked me why, I shrugged. When he pressed me, I told him what his mother had said, verbatim, without comment. And you're just going to sit there, let my mother decide what's right? He shouted, as if I were a co-conspirator who had turned traitor. I was touched that Ted was so upset. What should we do? I asked, and I had a pain feeling I thought was the beginning of love. In those early months, we clung to each other with a rather silly desperation, because in spite of everything my mother and Mrs. Jordan could say, there was nothing that really prevented us from seeing each other. With imagined tragedy hovering over us, we became inseparable. Two halves creating the whole, yin and yang. I was victim to his hero. I was always in danger, and he was always rescuing me. I would fall, and he would lift me up. It was exhilarating and draining. The emotional effect of saving and being saved was addicting to both of us, and that, as much as anything we ever did in bed, was how we made love to each other. Conjoined where my weaknesses needed protection. What should I do? I continued to ask him. And within a year of our first meeting, we were living together. The month before Ted started medical school at UCSF, we were married in the Episcopal Church, and Mrs. Jordan sat in the front pew, crying as was expected of the groom's mother. When Ted finished his residency in dermatology, we bought a run-down three-story Victorian with a large garden in Ashbury Heights. Ted helped me set up a studio downstairs so I could take in work as a freelance production assistant for graphic artists. Over the years, Ted decided where we went on vacation. He decided what new furniture we would buy. He decided we should wait until we moved into a better neighborhood before having children. We used to discuss some of the matters, but we both knew the question would boil down to my saying, "Ted, you decide." 
After a while, there were no more discussions. Ted simply decided. And I never thought of objecting. I preferred to ignore the world around me, obsessing only over what was in front of me. My T-square, my X-Acto knife, my blue pencil. But last year, Ted's feelings about what he called decision and responsibility changed. A new patient had come to him, asking what she should do about the spottery veins on her cheeks. And when he told her he could suck the red veins out and make her beautiful again, she believed him. But instead, he accidentally sucked a nerve out, and the left side of her smile fell down, and she sued him. After he lost the malpractice lawsuit, his first and a big shock to him now, I now realize, he started pushing me to make decisions. Do I think we should buy an American car or a Japanese car? Should we change from whole life to term insurance? What did I think about the candidate who supported the contrast? What about a family? I thought about things, the pros and the cons, but in the end, I would be so confused because I never believed there was ever any one right answer, yet there were many wrong ones. So whenever I said, you decide, or I don't care, or either way is fine with me, Ted would say in his impatient voice, no, you decide. You can't have it both ways, none of the responsibility and none of the blame. I could feel things changing between us. A protective veil had been lifted, and Ted now started pushing me about everything. He asked me to decide on the most trivial matters as if he were baiting me. Italian food or Thai? One appetizer or two? Which appetizer? Credit card or cash? Visa or MasterCard? Last month, when he was leaving for a two-day dermatology course in Los Angeles, he asked if I wanted to come along, and then quickly, because I brought the thing and never mind, I'd rather go alone. More time to study, I agreed. No, because you can never make up your mind about anything, he said. And I protested. But it's only things that aren't important. Nothing's important to you, he said in a tone of disgust. Ted, if you want me to go, I'll go. And it was as if something snapped in him. How the hell did we ever get married? Did you just say, I do, because the minister said, repeat after me? What would you have done with your life if I had never married you? Did it ever occur to you? This was such a big leap of logic between what I said and what he said that I thought we were like two people standing apart on separate mountain peaks, recklessly leaning forward to throw stones at one another, unaware of the dangerous chasm that separated us. But now I realized Ted knew what he was saying all along. He wanted to show me the rift because later that evening, he called from Los Angeles and said he wanted a divorce. Ever since Ted's been gone, I've been thinking. Even if I had expected it, even if I had known what I was going to do with my life, it still would have knocked the wind out of me. When something that violent hits you, you can't help but lose your balance and fall. And after you pick yourself up, you realize you can't trust anybody to save you. Not your husband, not your mother, not God. So what can you do to stop yourself from tilting and falling all over again? I'm going to read a section from Rose's mother. This is Anne Mei Su. When I was a young girl in China, my grandmother told me my mother was a ghost. This did not mean my mother was dead. In those days, a ghost was anything we were forbidden to talk about. So I knew Popo wanted me to forget my mother on purpose and this is how I came to remember nothing of her. The life that I knew began in the large house in Ningpo with the cold hallways and tall stairs. This was my uncle and auntie's family house where I lived with Popo and my little brother. But I often heard stories of a ghost who tried to take children away, 
especially strong-willed little girls who were disobedient. Many times Popo said aloud to all who could hear that my brother and I had fallen out of the bowels of a stupid goose, two eggs that nobody wanted, not even good enough to crack over rice porridge. She said this so that the ghost would not steal us away. So you see, to Popo we were also very precious. All my life Popo scared me. I became even more scared when she grew sick. This was in 1923, when I was nine years old. Popo, Popo had swollen up like an overripe squash. So full, her flesh had gone soft and rotten with a bad smell. She would call me into her room with a terrible stink and tell me stories. On May, she said, calling me by my school name, listen carefully. She told me stories I could not understand. One was about a greedy girl whose belly grew fatter and fatter. This girl poisoned herself after refusing to say whose child she carried. When the monks cut open her body, they found inside a large white winter melon. If you are greedy, what is inside you is what makes you always hungry, said Popo. Another time, Popo told me about a girl who refused to listen to her elders. One day this bad girl shook her head so vigorously to refuse her auntie's simple request that a little white ball fell from her ear and outpoured all her brains as clear as chicken broth. Your own thoughts are so busy swimming inside that anything else gets pushed out, Popo told me. Right before Popo became so sick she could no longer speak, she pulled me close and talked to me about my mother. Never say her name, she warned. To say her name is to spit on your father's grave. The only father I knew was a big painting that hung in the main hall. He was a large, unsmiling man, unhappy to be so still on the wall. His restless eyes followed me around the house. Even from my room at the end of the hall, I could see my father's watching eyes. Popo said he watched me for any signs of disrespect. So sometimes, when I had thrown pebbles at other children at school or had lost a book through carelessness, I would quickly walk by my father with a know-nothing look and hide in a corner of my room where he could not see my face. I felt my house was so unhappy, but my little brother did not seem to think so. He rode his bicycle through the courtyard, chasing chickens and the other children, laughing over which one shrieked the loudest. Inside the quiet house, he jumped up and down on uncle and auntie's best feather sofas when they were away visiting village friends. But even my brother's happiness went away. One hot summer day when Popo was already very sick, we stood outside watching a village funeral, funeral procession marching by our courtyard. Just as it passed our gate, the heavy framed picture of the dead man slipped from its stand and fell to the dusty ground. An old lady screamed and fainted. My brother laughed, and auntie slapped him. My auntie, who had a very bad temper with children, told him he had no show, no respect for ancestors or family, just like our mother. Auntie had a tongue like hungry scissors eating silk cloth. So when my brother gave her a sour look, auntie said our mother was so thoughtless she had fled north in a big hurry without taking the dowry furniture from her marriage to my father, without bringing her ten pairs of silver chopsticks, without paying respect to my father's grave and those of our ancestors. 
When my brother accused my auntie of frightening our mother away, auntie shouted that our mother had married a man named Wu Sing, who already had a wife, two concubines, and other bad children. And when my brother shouted that auntie was, talking, was a talking chicken without a head, she pushed my brother against the gate and spat on his face. You throw strong words at me, but you are nothing, auntie said. You are the son of a mother who has so little respect she has become Nyi, a traitor to our ancestors. She is so beneath others that even the devil must look down to see her. That is when I began to understand the stories Popo taught me, the lessons I had to learn for my mother. When you lose your face, An Mei, Popo often said, it is like dropping your necklace down a well. The only way you can get it back is to fall in after it. Now I could imagine my mother, a thoughtless woman who laughed and shook her head, who dipped her chopsticks many times to eat another piece of sweet fruit, happy to be free of Popo, her, unha uh, her unhappy husband on the wall, and her two disobedient children. I felt unlucky that she was my mother and unlucky that she had left us. These were the thoughts I had while hiding in the corner of my room where my father could not watch me. Okay. Last passage from Rose. I used to believe everything my mother said, even when I didn't know what she meant. Once when I was little, she told me that I knew it would rain. She told me she knew it would rain because lost ghosts were circling near our windows calling, to be let in. She said doors would unlock themselves in the middle of the night unless we checked twice. She said Amira could see only my face because she could see me inside out even when I'm not in the room. And all these things seemed true to me. The power of her words were so strong. She said that if I listened to her, later I would know what she knew, where true words came from, always from up high above everything else. And if I didn't listen to her, she said my ear would bend too easily to other people, all saying words that had no lasting meaning because they came from the bottom of their hearts where their own desires lived, a place where I could not belong. The words my mother spoke did come from up high, as I recall. I was always looking up at her face as I lay on my pillow. In those days, my sisters and I slept in the same double bed, Janice, my older sister, had an allergy that made one nostril sing like a bird at night, so we called her Whistling Nose. Rose was ugly foot because she could spread her toes out in the shape of a witch's claw. I was scaredy eyes because I would squeeze shut my eyes so I wouldn't have to see the dark, which Janice and Ruth said was a dumb thing to do. During those early years, I was the last to fall asleep. I clung to the bed, refusing to leave this world for dreams. Your sisters have already gone to see old Mr. Cho, my, my mother would whisper in Chinese. According to my mother, old Mr. Cho was the guardian of the door that opened onto dreams. Are you ready to go see old Mr. Cho too? And every night I would shake my head. Old Mr. Cho takes me to bad places, I cried. Old Mr. Cho took my place, sisters asleep. They never remembered anything from the night before. But old Mr. Cho would swing the door wide open for me. And as I tried to walk in, he would slam it fast, hoping to squash me like a fly. That's why I would always dart back into wakefulness. But eventually, old Mr. Cho would get tired and leave the door unwatched. The bed would grow heavy at the top and slowly tilt. And I would slide head first in through old Mr. Cho's door and land in a house without doors or windows. I remember one time I dreamt of falling through a hole in Mr. Cho's floor 
I found myself in a nighttime garden, and old Mr. Cho was shouting, Who's in the backyard? I ran away. Soon I found myself stomping on plants with veins of blood, running through fields of snapdragons that changed colors like stoplights, until I came to a giant playground filled with row after row of square sandboxes. In each sandbox was a new doll, and my mother, who was not there but could see me inside out, told Mr. old Mr. Cho she knew which doll I would pick. So I decided to pick one that was entirely different. Stop her! Stop her! cried my mother. As I tried to run away, old Mr. Cho chased me, shouting, See what happens when you don't listen to your mother? And I became paralyzed, too scared to move in any direction. The next morning, I told my mother what happened, and she laughed and said, Don't pay attention to old Mr. Cho. He's only a dream. You only have to listen to me. And I cried, but old Mr. Cho listens to you too. More than 30 years later, my mother was still trying to make me listen. A month after I told her that Ted and I were getting a divorce, I met her at church at the funeral of China Mary, a wonderful 92-year-old woman who had played godmother to every child who had passed through the doors of the first Chinese Baptist church. You're getting too thin, my mother said in her pained voice when I sat down next to her. You must eat more. I'm fine, I said, and I smiled for proof. And besides, wasn't it you who said my clothes were always too tight? Eat more, she insisted, and then she nudged me with a little spiral-bound book hand-titled Cooking the Chinese Way by China Mary Chan. They were selling them at the door, only $5 each to raise money for the refugee scholarship fund. The organ music stopped, and the minister cleared his throat. He was not the regular pastor. I recognized him as Wing, a boy who used to steal baseball cards from my brother Luke. Only later, Wing went on to divinity school, thanks to China Mary, and Luke went to the county jail for stealing stolen cars and um, car stereos, for selling the stolen car stereos. I can still hear a voice Wing sing to the mourners. She said God made me with all the right ingredients, so it would be a shame if I burned in hell. Already cremated, my mother whispered matter-of-factly, nodding toward the altar, where a framed color photo of China Mary stood. I held my fingers to my lips the way librarians do, but she didn't get it. That one, we bought it, she was pointing to a large spray of yellow chrysanthemums and red roses. $34, all artificial, so it will last forever. You can pay me later. Janice and Matthew also chip in some. You have money? Yes, Ted sent me a check. Then the minister asked everyone to bow in prayer. My mother was quiet at last dabbling her nose with Kleenex while the minister talked. I can just see her now, wowing the angels with her Chinese cooking and her gung-ho attitude. And when heads lifted, everyone rose to sing hymn number 335, China Mary's favorite, You Can Be an Angel Every Day on Earth. My mother was not singing. She was staring at me. Why does he send you a check? I kept looking at the hymnal singing, Sending Rays of Sunshine, Full of Joy from Birth. And so she grimly answered her own question. He's doing monkey business with somebody else. Monkey business? Ted? I wanted to laugh. Her choice of words, but also the idea. Cool, silent, hairless Ted, whose breathing pattern didn't alter one bit in the height of passion. I could just see him grunting, woo, 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 while scratching his armpits, then bouncing and shrieking across the mattress trying to grab a breast. Um, no, I don't think so, I said. Why not? I don't think we should talk about Ted now. Not here. Why can you talk about this with psychiatric and not with mother? Psychiatrist, 
Psychiatrics, she corrected herself. A mother is best. A mother knows what is inside you, she said above the singing voices. A psychiatrics will not only make you huli hudu, make you see hey momon, hey momon. Back home, I thought about what she said, and it was true. Lately, I had been feeling huli hudu, and everything around me seemed to be hey momon. These were words I had never thought about in English terms. I suppose the closest in meaning would be confused and dark fog. But really, the words mean much more than that. Maybe they can't be easily translated because they refer to a sensation that only Chinese people have, as if you're falling headfirst through old Mr. Cho's door, then trying to find your way back. But you're so scared that you can't open your eyes, so you get on your hands and knees and grope in the dark, listening for voices to tell you which way to go. I have been talking to too many people, my friends, everybody it seems except Ted. To each person I told a different story. Yet each version was true. I was certain of it, at least at the moment that I told it. To my friend Waverly, I said, I never knew how much I loved Ted until I saw how much he could hurt me. I felt such pain, literally a physical pain, as if someone had torn off both my arms without anesthesia, without sewing me back up. Have you ever had them torn off with anesthesia? God, I've never seen you so hysterical, said Waverly. You want my opinion? You're better off without him. It hurts only because it's taken you 15 years to see what an emotional wimp he is. Listen, I know what it feels like. To my friend Lena, I said I was better off without Ted. After the initial shock, I realized I didn't miss him at all. I just missed the way I felt when I was with him. Which is what, Lena gasped. You were depressed. You were manipulated into thinking you were nothing next to him. And now you think you're nothing without him. If I were you, I'd get the name of a good lawyer and go for everything you can. Get even. I told my psychiatrist I was obsessed with revenge. I dreamt of calling Ted up, inviting him to dinner to one of those trendy who's who's places like Cafe Majestic or Rosalie's. And after he'd started the first course and was nice and relaxed, I would say, it's not that easy, Ted. From my purse, I would take out a voodoo doll, which Lena had already lent me from her props department. I would aim my escargot fork at a strategic spot on the voodoo doll, and I would say out loud in front of all the fashionable restaurant patrons, Ted, you're just such an infinite bastard, and I'm going to make sure you stay that way. Wham! Saying this, I felt I had raced to the top of a big turning point in my life, a new me after just two weeks of psychotherapy. But my psychiatrist just looked bored, his hands still propped under his chin. It seems like you've been experiencing some very powerful feelings, he said, sleepy-eyed. I think we should think about this more next week. And so I didn't know what to think. My mother once told me why I was so confused all the time. She said I was without wood, born without wood so that I'd listen to too many people. She knew this because once she had almost become this way. Yesterday, my daughter said to me, my marriage is falling apart. And now, all she can do is watch it falling. She lies down on a psychiatrist's couch, squeezing tears out about this shame. And I think, she will lie there until there is nothing more to fall, nothing left to cry about, everything dry. She cried, no choice, no choice. She doesn't know. If she doesn't speak, she is making a choice. If she doesn't try, she can lose her chance forever. I know this because I was raised the Chinese way. I was taught to desire nothing, to swallow other people's misery, to eat my own bitterness. 
And even though I taught my daughter the opposite, still she came out the same way. Maybe it is because she was born to me and she was born a girl. And I was born to my mother and I was born a girl. All of us are like stairs, one step after another, going up and down, but all going the same way. I know how it is to be quiet, to listen and watch, as if your life were a dream. You can close your eyes when you no longer want to watch. But when you no longer want to listen, what can you do? I stop there. Okay, let me stop with that sentence. <laughs> but when you no longer want to listen, what can you do? I know how it is to live your life like a dream, to listen and watch, to wake up and try to understand what has already happened. You do not need a psychiatrist to do this. A psychiatrist does not want you to wake up. He tells you to dream some more, to find the pond and pour more tears into it. And really, he is just another bird drinking from your misery. My mother, she suffered. She lost her face and tried to hide it. She found only greater misery and finally could not hide that. There is nothing more to understand. That was China. That was what people did back then. They had no choice. They could not speak up. They could not run away. That was their fate. But now they can do something else. Now they no longer have to swallow their own tears or suffer the taunts of magpies. I know this because I read this news in a magazine from China. It said that for thousands of years, birds had been tormenting the peasants. They flocked to watch peasants bent over in the fields, digging the hard dirt, crying into the furrows to water the seeds. And when the people stood up, the birds would fly down and drink the tears and eat the seeds. So children starved. But one day, all these tired peasants from all over China, they gathered in fields everywhere. They watched the birds eating and drinking. And they said, enough of this suffering in silence. They began to clap their hands and bang sticks on pots and pounds and pans, and shout, die, die, die. And all these birds rose in the air, alarmed and confused by this new anger, beating their black wings, flying just above, waiting for the noise to stop. But the people's shouts only grew stronger, angrier. The birds became more exhausted, unable to land, unable to eat. And this continued for many hours, for many days, until all those birds, hundreds, thousands, and then millions, fluttered to the ground, until not one bird remained in the sky. And what would your psychiatrist say if I told him that I shouted for joy when I read that this had happened? We, 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 yeah, we're done with our reading. We chose to read this book. As you may know, Amy Tan is going to be speaking on campus on Friday night at 7 o'clock at the Mershon. I actually do have some tickets with me, but they are available here at the Wexner Center if you're interested in attending. And um, It's free. It's free. Yeah, it's free. <laughs> you have to pay for the tickets. <laughs> and this is part of the Big Read, which is a program that's been sponsored by the Greater Columbus Arts Council. And we have Alicia here from the Greater Arts Council. <laughs> Thanks for coming, Alicia. 
And I kind of wanted to talk a little bit about this text and about our reading of it because it's kind of funny. This is a book that, of course, I think most of us read when it was first published back in 19... It's so dated. I I remember the hairstyle. 89, 89, (laughs) yes, 1989. And some of you may have seen the movie, which was produced a few years after that, but that's also even dated by this time. But this is a book that I think really resonates. And it's so funny because at the time that I read it, my mother's Korean. And at the time that I read it, it was like, oh, my gosh, my mo- this is my mother. I mean, <laughs> you know, this sort of composite of these women who are in this book. And it's so funny because as I talk with other women from all kinds of different ethnicities, it doesn't matter. They're like, this is my mother. <laughs> and I think that that mother-daughter relationship is, is so amazing in so many ways in terms of how it shapes us and how it forms us. And, and one of the funny things is that I always said I would not do the things my mother did. I insisted. And she did have some things that I don't do. Nonetheless, I said I'm never going to be anything at all like my mother. One of the things that my mother did that irritated me, I found myself doing after I got my first dog. And he would not listen to me, and I wanted him to obey, and I started doing the count. One, <laughs> two, <laughs> Is in what happens when you get to three? I don't know. <laughs> you know, we never got that far. You know? <laughs> but sure enough, I found myself doing that. So, so our choosing this book and you know, our wanting to read it this way sort of pays homage to that shared feeling we all have toward our mothers or the mother figures in our lives. Um, I want to thank Georgina for picking out the selections for us. Um, and also, I, I have had those feelings of being the daughter, and then now that I am a mother of two. I very much identify with the mother. <laughs> um, I don't know how much time we have, but people should feel free to, to raise questions or comments or share reflections. I'm glad you said what you did. My reaction to you, obviously, I'm not interested. But I'm not in but my Yes and no. You know, I think there is, that, there is that determination that we all have imbued in us as Americans that we are individuals and that we are ourselves and that while other, these outside influences may have shaped us, nonetheless there's something unique that has stamped me. <laughs> so I think that there is a sort of refusal to think that we are a product of our past on the, on the part of us as a people. No, I, I really like that passage when... The, the hairdresser compliments the mother and daughter so you look alike and the daughter's like oh no is this my future <laughs> any kind of other comments or just um, thoughts that you want to share well thank you all for coming we appreciate it this was a lot of fun <laughs> Thanks to all of you for joining us this afternoon. Also, don't record any extraneous.